Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here is a joke that I probably would <laughs> break the ice with. <laughs> Why couldn't the pirate remember the alphabet? Because he always got lost at sea. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Swedish pop artist Seinabo C. She's been performing this week at the South by Southwest Music Conference. Yes. And so have a couple other of our guests on today's show, including R&B singer Leon Bridges and the Canadian post-punk band Viet Cong. Also coming up, we chat with actor Zachary Quinto, star of the NBC miniseries The Slap. We eavesdrop on comedian Sarah Schaefer and Brendan Eats Garbage. Specifically organic, well-prepared garbage. Delicious. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Obama administration is considering big changes in the U.S. stance towards Israel after Benjamin Netanyahu's election win. Robert Durst is currently being held without bond in New Orleans. Maybe the start of serious basketball tournament play in the NCAA, but already some major upsets. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Amy Nicholson. She is the chief film critic for the L.A. Weekly. Amy what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I want to tell you about my new hero. She is a woman named Lovely. She was a bride who was engaged to be married last week, and she's from the town of Rasluabad in India. Wow, okay. that's a great name, Lovely. I like Re- the name. And Rasluabad. Yeah, Rasluabad. That's a good name, too. So what happens? So Lovely was engaged to be married to a man. She shows up at the wedding, and she's been assured that he's, it's an arranged marriage, so she's assured that he's kind and intelligent. But she's never met him. But she's never met him. Okay. So she asks her cousins to ask him one question, which is, what is 15 plus 6? <laughs> oh. Now, I'm, I'm kind of afraid to ask you guys what that answer is. I was going to say, that's an odd number, so that's not necessarily fair. <laughs> that would be 21. Congratulations. His answer was 17. Oh, oh no. no. He didn't do well. So what happened? Uh, so what happened is that Lovely, I think, wins the award for baddest of all time. She got up to the altar, and then she's like, I am not marrying this guy. He is uneducated. And, and she storms out. Wow. What was the fallout? You know, what I love about this story is that her family took her side on it. Her dad gave an interview to the Times of India saying, even a first grader can answer this. We have been cheated. And then he called the cops. Wait, he could have been a literature major, you know? Maybe just <laughs> math wasn't his thing. Oh, wow. You know? You know as somebody who studied writing, I take offense to that question. Well, as That's someone true. who studied writing, I'm just being honest. <laughs> but I hear, what if the dude was just, he was really nervous. He was about to marry someone he'd never met yeah. before. And suddenly he's doing math. It's like, I don't sure. know. You Three. Know, in the course of a human life, a man gets nervous a lot. If every time he gets nervous, he suddenly looks at his fingers and nothing adds up. There's no way I'm hitching my wagon to that guy. <laughs> but if he had point. 17 fingers, that would be amazing. <laughs> it would be fantastic. All right, Amy Nicholson, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now time for a lovely cocktail. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our 100-proof history lesson with booze. And strong. First, the history part. (laughs) Earlier this week marked the 25th anniversary of an infamous moment in art history. And criminal history. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The night of St. Patrick's Day, 1990, while lots of Bostoners were busy drinking, two thieves were busy stealing. Picture the scene. It's 1.30 a.m. that night, and you're a security guard at Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, home to one of the world's great art collections. Suddenly, the intercom buzzes, and two cops tell you to let them in because there's been a report of a fracas. 
in the museum courtyard. You do as you're told, and then one cop handcuffs you, saying you look like someone he saw on an arrest warrant. When your fellow guard shows up, he gets handcuffed too, and that's when the cops tell you they're not cops. Actually, they're here to rob the joint. The alarm to alert the real police is behind the desk, which you can't hit because you're handcuffed. Then you're marched to the basement, where you sit all night while the thieves load 500 million bucks worth of art into their vehicle and drive off. The biggest theft of private property in American history. Among the stolen pieces, a Monet, a Vermeer, five drawings by Degas, and three Rembrandts. It would have been four, but the thieves couldn't get one of his self-portraits out of its huge frame, so they just left it on the floor. According to experts, stolen art is almost impossible to sell, and most art robbers get caught. But that hasn't prevented the Gardner Museum thieves from eluding capture for 25 years. And the art hasn't been recovered. Although the museum keeps empty frames on the wall, for the day it's all returned. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. We are speaking with Jackson Cannon. He is co-owner and bar director of The Hawthorne in Boston, home of this huge heist. And Jackson, first of all, I understand you were an art security guard at another museum at the time of this heist? Yes, we're going back 25 years. I was a Berkeley student working at the Museum of Fine Arts just across the way, and I worked a shift the next day, and we got to say we were all a little tense. I can imagine that security went up around the city all of a sudden in the wake of this. You know, like, I'm, you're supposed to say yes, but there weren't really any new... Maybe for the overnight guys, they were a bit more wary, but we just were still doing the same kind of thing. They didn't just, like, throw in some laser alarm systems or no, something? No, no. They didn't even do an, an additional briefing. We sort of heard it kind of whispered about, mostly, yeah. Oh, man. Anyway. I, I, I hope the robbers aren't listening right now. <laughs> uh, so, Jackson, you heard the history. You experienced it. What cocktail did that inspire? Well, clearly, the, the these were great works of art by Dutch masters. So um, I created a cocktail called the Dutch Room uh, using, uh, as its central ingredient, Bowles Geneva, which is a a spirit from Holland. Yes. You know, in some ways, a protogenitor to London-style gins. All right, so you start with the uh, Dutch gin, Geneva. So, yeah, for the Dutch room, we use uh, Bowles Geneva, uh, Listau's East India Sherry, uh, Chinar, which is an Italian bitter uh, made from artichokes, which still remains kind of a hipster ingredient in cocktail circles. I'm not, I'm not sure how much longer it's sure. going to last, but it's very cool to be using Chinar. <laughs> um, this, might, this might jump the shark for it. I hope not. But. I hope not. And that's a bit to represent the embittered uh, uh, guards, perhaps. That's kind of what I was thinking, or my, or uh, how profoundly distressed my art history teacher was. Uh, the results of this theft. Um, a dash of Regans, which uh, you know, you use a dash of red in a painting. We use a dash of bitters in a cocktail. Okay. Stir all those together, pour those out into a glass, and flame a little lemon oil over the top of it, and you have a great, bitter, perfumey, mm. uh, Dutch-inspired cocktail. So the paintings are gone, but the, the taste and scent of this drink will linger. Yeah, maybe after this cocktail, you know, you'll be able to fight back the tears. (laughs) 
Jackson Cannon of Boston Bar, the Hawthorne, and that drink will be on their menu this week. And folks, you can get the recipe for the Dutch Room cocktail and every new cocktail recipe from our show emailed right to your inbox by signing up for our weekly newsletter. Correct. You'll also get musings from Brendan and me about important things like our favorite sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Sign up at dinnerpartydownload.org slash newsletter. Chicken cheesesteak. All right, and now this party needs some music. Correct. So here with the Dinner Party playlist are Matt Flagel and Danny Christensen of Calgary-based band Viet Cong. Their intense post-punk sound has earned critical raves and made them one of the most buzzed-about bands at this week's South by Southwest conference, where they're playing half a dozen shows at least. Here they are with song suggestions. Hi, I'm Matt. And this is Danny. We're called Viet Cong. We have a new self-titled record out, and this is our Dinner Party mix. The first song that we would play for our dinner party would be Yukahiro Takahashi. And, and the I don't song. Know if I'm saying that right. Um, I'll say the song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Drip Dry Eyes. It's the best hook. Gets it is. stuck in your head for days. I heard about Yukaharo Takahashi through Danny because we were listening to a bunch of YMO, Yellow Magic Orchestra. Takahashi is one of the main songwriters in that band, and I hadn't heard any of his solo stuff before. At a dinner party, it's kind of a song that you can listen to in the background. It sets a good mood. It's very Japanese sounding. And there's um, an amazing sax solo in it as well. I think the second song for our, our dinner party would be Essie Rogi, and the song's called Please Go Easy On Me. Essie Rogi is from Sierra Leone, and he has a beautiful voice, and this is one of the prettiest songs. Now, me said, please go easy with me. I said, please go easy with me. I heard that while I was painting. I was painting a bathroom, and we had it busting out of our little uh, JBL iPod speaker. I quite agree that you can dance very well. The type of music, I think, is actually called palm wine guitar music. So this is when you bust out the wine, I think. Mm-hmm. This was a big tour song as well. Played it in the car all the time. When you're on tour, it's extremely important to uh, <laughs> stay uplifted. And if you're listening to uplifting music while you're driving 10 hours to the next city, uh, I don't know, you're going to be in a better mood to play a show. So our next track to listen to at dinner with your friends is Sugar Hiccup by the Cocteau Twins. I love this song. There's a funny story about this. Uh, for the longest time, we always thought the lyric was Sugar, sugar Hiccup My Cheerios. Sugar Hiccup Cheerios. <laughs> Which is not the actual lyric. Danny's, cl- Danny's claim <laughs> I did to some fame research. on this song is that 
He has the number one most viewed YouTube comment. Comment for saying sugar hiccup my Cheerios. I posted that and apparently people Danny's like so that. proud of this. It's pretty, uh, it's not a dance song really. No. You could dance to anything really. Who's stopping you? More of a cuddling on a couch, smoking. So if we had to play one of our own songs at a dinner party, which I'd only do if I got extremely obnoxious drunk. Oh, yeah. That's, see, that's... Uh, that's kind of crossing the a, line. It's a big faux pas when you um, play in a band. If I had to, I'd probably I'd choose the first track off the record, which is <laughs> Newspaper Spoons. And uh, do you know why? It's to get everyone out of your host. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yes. <laughs> the most abrasive noise you can possibly put through some speakers. I think that's the, that's the closer. Noisy end to a dinner party soundtrack mm. from the band Viet Cong. And by the way, a couple weeks back, Oberlin College said the band's name was offensive to many Vietnamese and canceled a gig. The band released a statement saying they were naive about Vietnam War history when they chose the name and didn't intend it to be hurtful. You can read more about that at dinnerpartydownload.org. Meanwhile, after the break, we chat with Zachary Quinto. Stick around. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, comic Sarah Schaefer gives us a whiff of her new album. That'll make sense later. But first, <laughs> let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and this week it's actor and producer Zachary Quinto. He's probably best known as Mr. Spock in the recent Star Trek movies, but he also starred in the cult superhero TV show Heroes and turned in a great performance as Tom in the multiple Tony-nominated revival of Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie. His latest role is in the fascinating NBC drama The Slap. It's about a man named Harry, played by Quinto, who slaps another parent's out-of-control kid at a party Mm. and how the other partygoers, all of different backgrounds, are affected by it. Here's a clip in which the proud, wealthy Harry tries to apologize to the kid's parents. I'm sorry. I am. Sorry. Any costs you've incurred, of course, I'll cover. Costs? It's a cost can't be calculated. The emotional costs. I mean, this is how people get scarred for life. For life? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I get it now. This is a shakedown, huh? What the hell does that mean? A shakedown. As in now, you have someone to pay for the shrink your son should have been seeing for the last three years. You actually think this is about money? Isn't it? And Zachary Quinto, welcome. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Harry's a philanderer. Mm-hmm. He has major anger issues. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear from following your career and your political activities, you're probably not a fan of Harry's more conservative political philosophy. But I would say that your portrayal is really empathetic. I actually find myself at times giving a damn about this character. What do you find connects you to him? Mm. I think that he is wounded in a way that he's not able to integrate, if that makes sense. So I, I connect with that sense of vulnerability and just injury that so many people in this world have and so few including Harry are actually interested or capable of looking at. For those who don't know the character, he's of course he lost his parents. Yeah, he was orphaned at a young age and he was uprooted from his homeland in Greece and brought to America and 
forced into a system that I think encouraged all the wrong aspects of his personality. Yeah. At the end of the episode in which Harry kind of features prominently, in fact, there's a narrator and the narrator in a way equates Harry's character with America. Do you see him that way? Because it's a pretty bleak picture of America, this guy who basically fights and fights and will destroy all to preserve his family. Yeah, it's definitely a bleak picture of what he, I mean, he represents America in a, in a number of different ways, right? He's an immigrant. He right. has achieved a, a, a great level of success and material accomplishment. He is living the American dream, but I think he feels really threatened by his success in terms of how other people see it. Like he has achieved all this stuff and now he's got this paranoia about uh-huh. protecting it, right? And and that seems to I be see the metaphor. A, a good allegory for, yeah. I think, what our, our country is going through right now politically. People who know you mainly from the movie Star Trek may be surprised to know this is not your first role on television. You're actually on TV for many years, even before you got your recurring role on the TV show Heroes. Right. Can you talk about that moment, making that jump from the small screen to the big screen? Well, look, you know, Heroes, for me, that had been the goal. Specificity has always been kind of really important to me. And I remember saying to my agents, like, I want to get a recurring role on an established show that's really successful. And, and did it? And then it happened. <laughs> and then in the midst of that experience, Star Trek happened. Oh my God. It really did legitimately feel like kind of winning the lottery twice in one year. It was crazy. And as far as pop culture geeks are concerned, that's the pinnacle. Yeah, man, for sure. And so for me, then it was about preparing for the scale of Star Trek. For me, acting tends to be about the proscenium and the size of the proscenium. So if you're on stage in New York and you're in a theater, and the proscenium's 35 feet wide. That's the space that you have to fill. Television, mm-hmm. the largest proscenium you're probably going to be on is, what, a 70-inch TV screen or something. And when you're making a film, you have to sort of calibrate for the size of the screen, the size of, of your stage. So it wasn't a, a, a huge adjustment in technique, I yeah. would say. It was but about it was a 50-foot adjustment. About a 50-foot adjustment. No, but I think it was really about, I would say, the bigger challenge in the Star Trek aspect of it is that You know, I'm playing a character who's known for his restraints and for his lack of emotional expression. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And And you've got to fill that room. And you have to still fill the, fill, yeah. Well, speaking of which, as a Trekkie, I hope you forgive me if I ask you this. Of course, we lost Leonard Nimoy a few weeks ago. You worked with him on that film. Yeah. Any story or a moment or something that you think captures the man? Well, you know, I, I, I more than worked with him on that film. He became an incredibly important person in my life. He represented for me uh, more of a father figure in my life than I've had since my own father died 30 years ago. So it was a a profound relationship. Um, uh, It's difficult to capture what made him the man that he was. I think the one thing about Leonard was his sense of humor. And uh, when when I first met him, it was in a crowded elevator in a very rushed circumstance at Comic-Con in 2007 (laughs) when we met there to announce that I'd be taking over the role. And, and he was bemused at my naivete in terms of what I was getting myself into, uh, the Star Trek world. And, and sort of Trek fandom. Yeah, exactly. And, and he was sort of ribbing me about that. And uh, Get ready, buddy. Yeah, you have no idea what you're in for, I think, was his opening salvo to me as we were heading out on stage in front of like 6,000 people or something. He will be missed, but, uh, but also celebrated, obviously. Obviously. Yeah. And I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Let me end this with our two standard questions. Sure. Hopefully not too big of a pivot okay. after that. Um, the first question is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? I don't know. Like, will you cut my head open or like, will you take a picture? Like, I feel like 
I don't. That's I one don't, of the things your characters on Heroes did. Was yeah, cut right, people's so, heads right. open. Yeah, like I, I tend to not really respond <laughs> to people who relate to me as a character that they know me for. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like, don't ask me. You. Don't ask me to make the Vulcan salute if we're taking a picture together. It's like you looked at me with a raised eyebrow. Like, that don't you no, no, self-proclaimed yeah, Trekkie that, do that to me later? <laughs> that just becomes reductive. I try to be respectful, but respectfully, I decline. All right, good. Um, I won't ask for the Vulcan right, salute later. Thank you for that. Um, our second question is: Tell us something we don't know. Um. Tennessee Williams trivia. Maybe that's a little oh. esoteric. Well, I can tell you this story. I don't know how it fits into the request here, but so somebody came to see The Glass Menagerie when I was doing it in, in New York. Somebody who was an acquaintance of Tennessee who knew Cherry Jones, who was playing my mom. This person gave Cherry this gift, which she then bequeathed to me. Somehow she felt like it was more appropriate for me to have this, which is interesting. And it's this beautiful, ornate bird and it's like a little tray and it turns out that what it was was Tennessee's coke dish a co- a cocaine 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 <laughs> what yeah. isn't that crazy and you take the little lid off and then there's like a, a little spoon in there and then it has a tail that's beautiful and you would never know what it was to look at it yeah it's, but it could I, be a candy dish could maybe. be it well it's much smaller than that it's like smaller than an iPhone for tiny peppermints for tiny mints the good news is that you know it will remain empty and decorative <laughs> and I and I, I take a fair amount of pride in that fact you know <laughs> Zachary Quinto. He stars in the miniseries drama The Slap. It airs Thursdays at 10 p.m. on NBC. And if you want to hear more about Tennessee Williams, including what may have driven him to use that little tray, we have an interview with his biographer, John Lahr, at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. Comedian Sarah Schaefer won an Emmy for writing The Late Night with Jimmy Fallon blog. Her new comedy album is called Chrysalis. Today we overhear her tell a tale that smells like teen spirit. Hi, this is Sarah Schaefer. Today I'm going to tell you a story that's from my album and my life. All right, so it's the very first week of middle school. And in gym class, our first assignment was to collect a little tub of supplies for our little gym locker. And one of the items on the list was deodorant. There was no way that I was going to have a discussion with my mom about deodorant. I mean, that was just like gross. We don't talk about those types of things. But at the same time, I was a huge nerd and I really wanted to get an A on this assignment. So as the week went on, I was becoming increasingly more angry at my mother for not predicting that I needed deodorant and just leaving it on the table there for me. So it's the day it's due and we're about to leave the house. And I'm just like, Mom! And she's like, what? Oh my God, what? I need deodorant! And she's like, what? What? When? Now? Well, what kind? And I'm secret! Jasmine Breeze! Specifically, Jasmine Breeze! All right, let me go through the... Hold on, she's like going through a cabinet. And she's like, oh, 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 this will work. And she puts down a 64-ounce can of spray right guard. <gasps> no! That's for Shaquille O'Neal! 
And she's like, I don't care. You waited to the last minute. This is what procrastination causes. You're taking it to school. Now put it in your backpack. I get to school. I'm not taking it out in the locker room. No way. No way. So I go up to the teacher. I unzip my backpack and I just creak it open and I show it to the teacher. And I'm just like, are we good? She's like, yeah. Okay. Avoided embarrassment. But then it dawns on me. I can't take this can of deodorant back home because my mom, if she sees it, she will be so mad that I made such a big deal and was so dramatic and I didn't actually even turn it in. So at this point, it's like a dead body I have to get rid of. And I was by my regular locker. It was just a magical, quiet moment. And I just quickly put it on the top shelf of the locker. And then I delicately leaned a Luke Perry 90210 folder up against it. And I was like, okay, that actually looks pretty good. I shut my locker and I walk away. Cut to the end of the school year. It's time to get it out of that locker. I gotta clean out my locker. I was just gonna tip it into my backpack. But right before I could do that, Billy, you know who you are. I'm not changing your first name because you are not innocent. He slammed his hand on the locker next to me just to startle me caused the Luke Perry folder to fall forward and float down to the ground in slow motion like a feather. Billy's eyes locked with the can of right guard, and he was just like, Everybody! Summoning the whole school, everyone gathers around. He's like, Sarah Schaefer is a man! He grabs the can of deodorant, and he's like, Better spray it all up, spray it up and down. And I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. That's probably going to make you sterile. Seriously, don't do that. Anyway, everyone laughed. I disintegrated into a pile of dust, reconstituted myself, and then walked backwards slowly to the bus, holding my head down in shame. It's a sad story, but, you know, don't feel bad for me, because he's dead. I'm just kidding. I don't think he's dead. I just, I like to imagine that. He's probably a really nice guy. He's probably got kids. Sarah Schaefer, her new stand-up album is called Chrysalis, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So Rico, true confession. All right. There was a brief moment in my life when I used to dumpster dive. Huh, I can I can imagine you being a freegan at one I, point. I was, sort of. We would grab bruised vegetables from grocery store dumpsters okay. and make stir fries and then pair them with things that we actually bought in the store like beer. <laughs> of course. <laughs> salad days. Well, renowned chef Dan Barber of Blue Hill Restaurant in Manhattan has taken eating food refuse to a whole new level with a pop-up restaurant he's hosting this month called Wasted. Everything on the menu is made from food waste. Uh So I met with Barbara in his kitchen during dinner rush, and I asked him where the idea came from. So the idea for Wasted originated because I started to see that while I'm a farm-to-table advocate, the thinking for farm-to-table might be just a little bit too specific because it allows us to pick individual ingredients instead of looking at the entirety of a system, whether it's a farming system or a food processing system. And what we need to do more of is start to think about supporting the entirety of a food system, which means creating a culture and a demand for the things that we 
would, at first blush anyway, think of as uncoveted or undelicious. The less sexy cuts. The less sexy cuts of meat. I mean, we have an expression, nose-to-tail eating of the animal. We need to think about nose-to-tail eating of the food system. And that includes things like stuff that ends up in the dumpster and things like chickpea water, which every time we dump out, we're dumping out this delicious mousse, that taste of legumes and salt and fatty and rich, but also delicate and beautiful. Why is this stuff thrown away? I think these foods are thrown away because we don't have a culture for eating them. We eat high on the hog. We eat the most precious stuff, the the cream of the crop. You know, ultimately that's not a very sustainable way to eat, but it came about because our country was so productive. It was so fertile and it produced a lot of food. We were never forced into the kind of negotiations that peasants have been forced into for thousands of years. That created dishes out of supposed waste. So so we'd eat the cream of the crop. We would not eat the beef tallow of the crop. Can you tell me how that dish came about? That's kind of a clever use. We're buying whole dairy cows, and we have a lot of beef tallow. So we figured out a way to to melt it and, and, and put a wick in there, which they used to do, and have a candle. So your candle at your table is beef tallow, and then you pour the beef tallow into a little uh, container, and that's your your butter for your bread. And so what did the dairy cow owners and the people that are throwing out the kohlrabi ends say when you approach them about buying their waste or taking over their waste? It's been weird. I mean, the response has been, like, overwhelmingly excited and positive because it's not their fault. They create waste, yes. We all create waste. Their point is there's no market for this stuff, so the labor and the distribution doesn't pay. So we got to create demand. So, so that's why this is, project is here, is to create the culture around these products and around this idea, not to bemoan the fact that we all waste or that Americans are a particularly wasteful society. I mean, no, it's like okay. So what do you do about that? You know, it lasts about as long as this conversation. You feel bad, and then you try not to like throw away your your leftover dinner. I mean, okay, but and that's too is sort of important, but it doesn't penetrate the culture in a way that. I think chefs and restaurants have the opportunity to. And so if you make it delicious, people will start to ask for it. And and, and it'll bleed into the culture, but it's got to be in a context of hedonism and delight. What, what's the superstar? What's the breakout star for you with this stuff? Because you have 21 food. It's a dumpster dive salad. And we have a dumpster salad right here. Dumpster dive salad with pistachios. And then this is water from chickpeas that we whip. Like a can of chickpeas? A can of chickpeas, drain the water and whip it. All right, so I'm tasting the dumpster salad here. It's kind of like a coleslaw. It has carrot pieces and kohlrabi ends shredded. Oh my goodness. The chickpea foam is tremendous. And the pistachio adds a savory quality to everything. So I guess, you know, you were talking about a lot of chefs, we, you know, they cook with awful, they cook with some sort of waste, but you kind of, it seems like you cast a wider net. So I'm trying to think of some of the things you brought into your kitchen for this event that normally wouldn't be there. Well, a good example is, is skate cartilage, skate bones. That's the leftover uh, bones after filleting a skate. We cut it into sort of the size of potato uh, fries and, and, and fry it. All right, so I'm going to eat this. So this is crunchy, like a French fry. Do you imagine any of these things being part of your restaurant outside of this pop restaurant? All of these things in different ways are a part of my restaurant. It's just I don't call it wasted. So that's the difference. So yes is the, is the answer. Everything here is part of it. I mean, there's some places we push the envelope a little bit, like dog food. You know, that's a recipe from the butcher down the block. And what, what, is, the, what is in that? He serves dog food. But we, we looked at the recipe 
and where he gets these animals from, the same place as we get our animals from. Incredible meat, but it's an offal that can't be served, more of the dairy cow. It's delicious. So what's a uh, thing that didn't work that you kind of maybe thought was going to work out, but really should remain waiting? Cucumber leaves. I thought we could peel them down and make a beautiful salad of cucumber um, leaves and branches, but it didn't work. So is the, what's in your trash can after an evening here with Wasted? Not a lot. <laughs> Not a lot. It's a beautiful thing. Enrico, I don't know if you caught that, but he was using one butcher's dog food and turning it into a meatloaf oh that he was gosh. serving. And it was good. Yeah, from old dairy cows that are normally served to dogs, and it was delicious. This is, this is all going to make me look at my compost jar very differently. <laughs> it's I like a rotting like. cornucopia right there in your kitchen. It is. You just eat it like salad. Delicious. People, after a break, we're going to chat with Soul Sensation Leon Bridges. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, Emily Post's great-great-grandkids answer your etiquette questions. But first, we would like to introduce you to a musician who is working overtime this week at the South by Southwest Music Fest in Austin. Yes, his name is Leon Bridges, and he doesn't even have a full-length album yet. That's coming soon. Mm. But about a year ago, a couple of his songs caught fire on the Internet. And people scrambled to find out who he was and whether he was a modern musician or a lost artist from the 60s. To understand the confusion, listen to this clip from his song, Better Man. So, Leon Bridges, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. So, I have a feeling this is going to be a big week for you in Austin, Texas, for South by Southwest, because your music has been so buzzed about. But you are also a native of Texas. You're from Fort Worth. What was it like growing up there? I was, like, in a bubble. I mean, really sheltered kid growing up. But, um... Fort Worth is great. I mean, I love Fort Worth mainly because just my my family and my friends. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just a simple, simple place. <laughs> well, you were saying you you were in a bubble. This, are you referring partially to? I've read that your your mother was a very religious person, and you weren't allowed to listen to secular music. Is that yes? Yeah, my mother was very religious, um, so I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music and, and go to parties and all that stuff. So I was at home all the time. <laughs> and yet you found ways, like all children, <laughs> to yeah. to work around these these restrictions. Tell What were your listening practices? What was your first introduction to music when you were a kid? It was just me turning on the radio, um, <laughs> you know, while she was while she was gone. And I remember the first time, you know, really introduced to, to R&B. Um, I was at a community center lock-in, and a guy, he was playing A When a Woman's Fed Up by R. Kelly on the piano. And, mm. I mean, I was just captivated. I think it's interesting that your music sounds like it's from the 60s, but you've said you grew up listening to stuff like R. Kelly yeah. and other top 40 hits and kind of 90s R&B. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, from, from Genuine to Usher and... 112 to Drew Hill. I mean, and you know, those are, are actually, you know, great R&B bands compared to, I would say, like the contemporary R&B today. And so did you ever find a moment when you were, say, 
in Target or Walmart with your mother and you were humming along to the song and you and she busted you for knowing what was going on? Yeah, yeah there was a lot, a lot of that, a lot of that. I remember uh, just being in the car and, and her like kind of scanning through the, 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 on the stations and, you know, song came on. I started singing this, you know, she was like, boy, how do you know that song? <laughs> one of your, one of the songs on your EP is called Lisa Sawyer. Is that, is that a story about your mother? Yes, it is. She was born horny, New Orleans, New Orleans, Louisiana. Branded with the name Lisa Sawyer. Circa 1963. Grandmother was Indian, Indian. Her mother's name was Eartha, swift as the wind, fierce as fire. So what, what inspired you to write a song about her? When I first wrote that song, I had the chord progression, and I couldn't think of any lyrics to, to write to it, and so I wrote just a, a very silly song about crayons to it. And... I was thinking that that song, you know, might go a long way, and so I felt, you know, I wanted to write something more meaningful. Crayons. What? What were? What were some of the original verses? Then it was like um, my imagination is running wild, and something like that. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember. <laughs> you could sell that to Crayola probably right now. There, for... you, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> You're playing music now, you're touring now, but in college, you had a different relationship to music. You majored in dance. How did that happen? Well, I had always been fascinated with dance um, because of, you know, Genuine and Usher, you know, seeing them in their videos. And so I, you know, tried to teach myself um, hip-hop from, I mean, when I was 11 years old. And when I got to college, you know, I went there just to take some academic classes. It was a little community, community college. And they had a dance program there, and I took some ballet, um, jazz, and modern mm. technique. I thought I wanted to be a choreographer, but I really found my voice with writing and singing songs. Well, in a way, you kind of are a choreographer because people can't tell listening on the radio, but you dress the part here. You you have a, you wear high-waisted pants and kind of classic kind of 60s stuff. You kind of dress a little bit like Sam Cooke. Yeah. You record using vintage equipment. Uh, your aesthetic is very much part of your contribution artistically. How did you arrive at this look and this sound, this kind of 60s R&B thing? It was actually when I, I wrote the Lisa, so the Lisa Sawyer song about my mother in 2012. And this is before I, I started pursue, to pursue this old sound. And um, a, a friend of mine, he, he asked me if Sam Cooke was one of my inspirations. And, and I felt bad because... I didn't really know about his music like that. And so after that, I started to dig in and, you know, just really went on Pandora and, and all that type of stuff and a little bit of YouTube. Yeah. And at that time, I was really searching for my voice, and I really found it within this old, older sound. Baby, 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 I'm coming home to your tender sweet love your mind, one and only one. Well, these are bitter taste in my mouth, girl. You're the only one that I want. Wanna be around. 
So I have to ask, has your mom heard these songs? And <laughs> if so, what does she think? Yeah, my, you know, my mother, she's definitely, you know, kind of toned down, you know, over time. <laughs> and so I was a little worried, you know, with my music, if really accepted or not. But she, she's, you know, on board and, and loving every single one of them. Baby, how will be grieving if you wanted to leave? Leon Bridges. This song is called Coming Home. It's the first single from his forthcoming debut in Columbia Records. You can hear the whole thing at dinnerpartydownload.org. And if you're at South by Southwest right now, you may still have a chance to catch him there live. So, Brendan, First of all, that music is so good, I want to play it on repeat. Uh, but that would probably be rude to our listeners. That is true. And speaking of polite behavior, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this week are etiquette authorities, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post Senning. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition. Also, they host the podcast Awesome Etiquette. And somehow still find the time to join us once a month to help make America polite. Yes. Lizzie and Daniel, welcome back. Thank it is an you. honor and a privilege. For us especially. And actually, Dan, you were in studio with us in Los Angeles. You have fled your usual hometown of Burlington, Vermont. I can't imagine why. This is so yeah. exciting. Mm. Yeah, this is called warmth <laughs> you're experiencing. This is the second time this has happened. I still feel like the kid who doesn't get invited to the party. This leads to a question. So yeah. what so Dan is in LA. Lizzie is in Vermont. What yeah. is the etiquette around gloating? Because honestly, honestly, if you live on the East Coast and, and you go on Instagram or Facebook in the dead of winter, you see tons of people from nicer climates bragging about how nice they have it just straight up. Yes. I wish and, you could see the text that I was sending from your studio lobby <laughs> earlier it, today. Earlier today. Um, you know, you have to think about, is the cup half empty or half full here? Like, is it gloating? Because everyone who loves ski season and sees the wonderful amount of snowfall that we've gotten mm. would absolutely be like, yeah, you go enjoy your 65 and no snow. <laughs> okay. Context right. matters. But one could argue that Instagram is basically just a platform for gloating. Look That's where true. I am. Look <laughs> who true. I'm with. Not just appropriate de rigueur. It is expected. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, I think it's fine. You know, you share what you do. And if you're in a place where you've got beautiful sunshine and tan year round, you go right ahead and share that. That's why I just follow miserable people. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk to some people who are in various states of misery and joy. Uh, let's yes. answer their questions. Here's something from Joanne in St. Louis, Missouri. Joanne writes, I'd never correct anyone's use of punctuation at work. That's just being a jerk. But a manager <laughs> just used, quote, performant, as if it's the adjective form of performance, as in high performant team. Dare I correct this manager? Yes. <laughs> really? You do? Dan, going to you in L.A., what do you think? I, I say yes, quietly, in private. Don't call him out in front of the team. Um, broccoli on the tooth. Uh, help him avoid further embarrassment in the future down the line by addressing the awkward situation. For those who don't and, know, broccoli on the tooth is the general rule we've learned here. If you see someone with broccoli on their tooth, you let should... Let them know. Absolutely. Yeah. I thought broccoli on the tooth was Dan whispering to his agents around the country, Dan. <laughs> That's etiquette expert code for launching an attack. <laughs> Sneaking that in there. No, but you do want to be careful. Remember that you are correcting someone who's senior to you at the company. And, and so I think Dan's right. You really want to make sure you do it aside and do it gently and just say, hey, I'd want to know if the situation was reversed. Because you don't okay. want to get a bad performance review. 
Okay, but I'm <laughs> moving quickly on. Here is something that we got via Twitter from Aisha E, aka at Jules Factor. And Aisha writes, How can I, quote, nicely tell someone I don't want to carry their newborn? And I think we should clarify. I don't think that means actually being a surrogate mom, yeah. like literally holding a newborn. I was going to say that I don't think there's a polite way to tell someone that you don't want to have their baby. Uh, what does she do? Some, I guess it's true. Some people just don't feel comfortable holding an infant. A little humor when you're delivering bad news. You know, I, I, I don't trust myself, please. Yeah, I think also, you know, headed off at the pass, let your friend know, like, yeah, of course, I, I want to get together. I am, I'm a little nervous around newborns. Before you hand them off to me, let's work our way up to that or something like that. The stigma that comes with this is that it's like, oh, you're anti-child and uh, disapprove mm-hmm. of me having one. Yeah. And... You know, people have all different reasons for kind of being uncomfortable around kids. Some people might be going through their own issues with whether or not they can or can't have kids. And I think it, it's okay to not have to share those things if you don't feel comfortable sharing it, but to just say, you know, hey, th- this is just an area I'm a little uncomfortable in, but I really I really do want to spend some time with you. Can't you pretend you're sick? Oh, good oh, one. Oh, I'm getting over a cold. <laughs> then they're not going to let you in the <laughs> in the house at all, man. Daniel's shaking his head. No deception. No deception. Okay. But I'm not one of those people. I totally am happy to hold children. Okay, so just call, call up. There up. you go. Yeah. Jules Factor, call Brendan. I totally hold babies. <laughs> baby holder. That, at, at baby holder. Um, all right, so this next question comes from Steve in Lahui, Hawaii. And that's a cool town to live in. Yeah. Steve writes, I was taught that after cutting your food, you take a piece to your mouth, either with the fork in your left hand, tines down, European style, or with the fork tines up in your right hand, American style. Wow. But lately I've noticed that some people spear the food with the fork in their left hand in a vertical position. Their thumb is at the top of the fork and the handle of the fork grasped <laughs> with their full hand like a fist, <laughs> as little kids frequently do. Is it acceptable? So it's like they're clutching yeah. the, the, the fork in their fist with their thumb on the back of the fork. And then point your fist down, like thumb down, like you're sending a gladiator to their death. Be hungry. Yeah, no, hungry. yeah, it's like it's a, it's like a stabbing. It's like you it's like a stabbing, guys. Come on. And has anyone seen this though? I mean, is this a thing or is this Yeah, just... no, Dan and I see it all the time, but we typically see it with little kids. In fact, Dan's mother witnessed a little kid holding their fork like that and they sent a piece of chicken flying across the room. Oh my god. Because it doesn't you don't have a lot of control. One of the reasons we hold our forks and knives the way you see it suggested on uh, emilypost.com is because <laughs> is because you get the most amount of control. In the same way that you notice it, other people are going to notice it also. So in what way is it wrong? As Lizzie points out, you don't have maximum control and it's going to raise questions in other people's minds. If you want their focus to be on that, by all means, continue to eat that way. But people (laughs) will notice it as strange. All right. uh, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. We are out of time. And and Dan, do you need to tell them again? Broccoli in tooth. (laughs) (laughs) The blue monkey crosses the yellow moon at midnight. The etiquette sleeper cells around the country are activated. Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling people how to behave. Hey, thanks for having us. Indeed. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending host the podcast Awesome Etiquette, which, like our show, is part of the Infinite Guest Podcast Network. Check it out at infiniteguest.org. And Rico, you know what's really impolite? What's that? When listeners send us letters and we don't respond. Oh, what should we do about that? I think we should respond to some listener letters. What a great idea to have suddenly had. And look, the first one is actually about the posts. Now that's a weird coincidence. Yes. 
Uh, a few weeks back, a listener had a question about canning etiquette. Namely, when you receive a gift of homemade canned goods, do you return the jar to the giver? Hmm. Lizzie Post replied thusly. I'm going to make this really clear for Jacqueline. You do not have to return the canning jar. You do not. It is unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, of course not. It, that is, that's the part of the gift. Don't worry about it. Well, many of our canning happy listeners beg to differ. That's right. The overwhelming consensus was return the jar. Oh, they were angry. <laughs> Number one reason, mason jars aren't cheap. Here's Carrie from Baltimore with another reason. I am a canner. I've been doing it for three or four years. I love giving gifts of jam, especially when my friends and family return the empty jar. I know they ate it and loved it. And if I get the jar back, I can refill it and give you more. So basically, the return jar triggers in the canner's brain the primal impulse to can something else for you. Good incentive. Noted. Yeah. Uh, moving on, last week I spoke with Mark Adams about his book Meet Me in Atlantis, in which he documents the years he spent searching for the original location of Plato's lost city of Atlantis. Edna in Michigan thought he missed an obvious spot. I was surprised that the author didn't mention the fairly widely held theory that a massive volcanic disaster destroyed the whole civilization on Thera, which corresponded to some of the descriptions that Plato gave of Atlantis. Well, actually, Edna Mark did mention Thera, which is now the island known as Santorini, as a possible location of Atlantis. But he and I talked about a lot of possible locations. And because our show isn't three hours long, I did have Mm. to edit that part out. I'm sorry. But rest assured, Edna, Thera is not forgotten. No way. And finally, a few weeks back, we talked about a Texan take on a certain Czech pastry filled with meat and cheese. I found them incredibly tasty, and my guests and I called them kolaches. Mm-hmm. George in Austin, Texas, had a problem with that. Y'all need to be aware that kolache is the plural. Kolach is the singular. And in my Czech grandmother's kitchen 50-some-odd years ago, uh, she baked many delicious kolache, prune, poppy seed, apricots, all kinds of sweet things, uh, but never any savory items involved. So maybe your listeners could help us think up a new name for these non-traditional pastries. All right, the gauntlet's been thrown. If you have a name in mind, audience, or you want to tell us what else we've mangled, missed, or mistaken, head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Note, if your message is sent in a mason jar, it won't be returned. Postage. And, folks, that's the show this week. Jackson Musker produces the Dinner Party Download. Christina Lopez is associate digital producer. Our interns are Ed Morales and Christiana Cabal. Ravi Carmen engineered. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. As always, you can keep up with us on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Or, if you live in the Twin Cities, mm. you can come see us in real life. That's right. We will be in Minnesota May 9th for a special live show featuring comedian Michael Ian Black. Music from Angel Olsen and Lizzo. Storytelling from author Marlon James. Oh, it will be quite the to-do. It's all happening at the iconic Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul, a.k.a. the house Garrison Keillor built. All right. Very excited. More info at fitzgeraldtheater.org. Tickets are on sale now. Hope to see you there. Meanwhile, bon appétit. Bon appétit.